Just before we get into Frontier War Stories, I want to start by advising listeners that these episodes are heavy and we are talking about the violence of the frontier that was handed out to Aboriginal people all over this continent in the first 140 years. Please be advised. Welcome to Frontier War Stories. Before I go on any further, I would like to pay my respects to country on which I am making this podcast and where my guest uh, is at the moment. And I also would like to acknowledge all Aboriginal people who fought in the Frontier Wars, which began as early as 1788 until the 1830s. That's roughly 140 years that Aboriginal people continued to fight. I would also like to pay my respects to all the mob across this beautiful continent. Uh, Each episode, I speak with different Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people about research, books, oral histories, which document the first 140 years of conflict and resistance. These times are the frontier wars, and these are our war stories. In episode 15, I speak with Lindley Wallace, Uh, who is an Australian um, archaeologist and associate professor with uh, Griffith University. And on this episode, we are talking about the Queensland Native Mounted Police, which operated for over 50 years, from 1849 until 1904. It was organised along paramilitary lines, consisting of detachments of Aboriginal troopers led by white officers. It operated across the whole of Queensland and it was explicitly constituted to protect the lives and livelihoods and property of settlers and to prevent and punish any Aboriginal aggression or resistance. This was often accomplished through violence in many forms. Leading historian uh, Henry Reynolds characterises the Native Mounted Police as the most violent organisation in Australian history. Uh, Lindley, uh, thank you for joining us um, on Frontier War Stories. This is our second attempt after many, many months, so I think this attempt will be much better and um, will definitely uh, keep um, uh, this audio. Thanks for inviting me, though. It's good to finally touch base with you. Yes, no, it is, it is. Um, and I guess I'll just firstly kick off with um, Native Mounted Police. Where does that term come from? Um, it's a phrase that comes out of an earlier phrase, which was sort of the Native Police. And the British had a history of using local Indigenous peoples to police the Indigenous peoples of the countries that they were annexing into the British Empire. So, yeah, it's globally. That's right, that's right. So in Australia, we had um, in Victoria and New South Wales, the native police forces were formed. And in Queensland, um, this force was interchangeably called the native police or the native mounted police. And we've used the native mounted police just to distinguish a little bit more that we're not talking about Victoria or New South Wales. We're specifically talking about the Queensland native Mm -hmm. police force. Correct me if I'm wrong as well. Um, I just remember seeing films or even sort of reading articles and getting told stories of how in some instances, whether it was here or in Canada, uh, different police force sort of exchanged ideas or not necessarily ideas, but tactics come down harder on sort of native uh, resistance. Well, I guess I'll just answer my question, so I'll just scratch that. Well, I'll I'll just jump in there actually because it's quite interesting that when we look at the officers in this native mounted police force, Quite a, them, quite a lot of them actually came from military backgrounds themselves. So some had been members of the British military forces. But interestingly, quite a lot of them had been Irish police officers back in Ireland from the Royal Irish Constabulary. So these men brought with them some of those ideas from other policing and other military um, forces that they had been involved in. So I think there's some, you know, really interesting connections there, as you sort of say, globally, mm. that ideas and information were exchanged from experiences in different parts of the globe. Mm. And just before we get into the sort of the crux of what happened in Queensland, 
Um, how long before this was in Queensland was the native mount or was the native police force uh, operating uh, on this continent? Um, oh, that I've been focusing on the Queensland one, so I'm not especially um, up to date mm-hmm. with the exact dates from the New South Wales and Victoria forces. Um, but pretty much, almost from day one, it, it, it didn't take long before the settlers realised and the authorities realised that, you know, there was going to be resistance and, and something needed to be done. And, and one of the issues, of course, was that the Europeans who had come out to Australia, the soldiers and the free settlers as well as the convicts, they weren't really good bushmen. They didn't understand the country and it quickly occurred to them that, you know, Aboriginal people had the advantage. They were on their own country. They knew how to travel across that country really easily. And it was easy for them to get away um, in a lot of first instances. And so that was why they decided, well, the only way to track an Aboriginal person is to use another Aboriginal person. So it didn't take long for the force to start operating in mm. that way. And um, just just harking, going back to one of the other things you mentioned, you know, it wasn't just the um, the ideas that these native police forces were taking from other military forces. But, you know, it was also the weaponry. So you've got to remember, you know, Australia is at at what people thought of as the end of the earth. It was very far away from these supply chains. And Australia didn't manufacture any of the weapons that these native police forces used. These weapons were all bought in from the UK, you know, their orders were placed with British manufacturers of weapons who then made the weapons in England and shipped them out to Australia. So that's another interesting sort of line um, of research that one of our students has been looking at, that that issuing of weapons to the Native Mounted Police versus the police and, and that those impro- what people would refer to as improvements in weaponry, so greater efficiency and greater accuracy, were one of the reasons that the Native Mounted Police of Queensland became so deadly because during that latter half of the 19th century, weapons technology increased in leaps and bounds and the weapons became much quicker to reload so you could have repeated firing going on and they were also much more accurate so when you aimed at something you were more likely to hit it than you had been in the 18 the 1700s or the early 1800s let's sort of get into the Queensland Native Mounted Police, as you, as I mentioned, sort of in the introduction, around 1849 was the introduction to the Native Mounted Police here in Queensland. Um, how established was, I guess, the Queensland Police Force in Queensland before they actually started setting up camps? Um, and I know from reading some stuff on your website, there was multiple uh, camps throughout Queensland. Um, I think in the hundreds, uh, yeah, over uh, over you know uh, a period of fifty years. Um, yeah. So how how established was the Queensland Police Force before they started organising Aboriginal people to enlist or enroll or participate? Whatever, however you yeah, sort of that's a, that's a really interesting um, question to explore. So when the first Queensland Native Mounted Police arrive in Queensland, it's actually not part of Queensland. It's the northern part of New South Wales. So in 1849, Frederick Walker um, recruits a dozen men from the Murrumbidgee and Murray River area and brings them into those northern districts of New South Wales um, where pastoralists have been pushing northwards. And those men then eventually become the Queensland Native Mounted Police when Queensland separates from New South Wales in 1859. So the Queensland Native Mounted Police actually operated for 10 years before the state was even um, in, in effect. And then, as you say, they lasted through the entire rest of the 1800s. So from 1849, when it was still part of New South Wales, into 1859, when Queensland separates from New South Wales. And then the end of the Native Mounted Police is quite tricky to tie down because there was no firm date when the force ended. By the end of the 1800s, most of the Native Mounted Police stations or camps had been shut down. And as you rightly said, there were at least 120 of these camps scattered across Queensland at different times. The very last police station in Queensland that was referred to as a Native Mounted Police station was the one at Cohen up in Cape York Peninsula. 
And that one actually didn't close as a native police force until 1929, which is you know much later than everywhere else in the state. So most of the most of the camps had been closed by about 1900 1904, and at that time most of the Aboriginal staff who had been called troopers then became known as Aboriginal trackers and were associated um, with the regular police force. So they, they, I guess the Commissioner of Police and the state authorities tried to make a, a change um, and in the terminology and in the hopes that they could have probably divorce themselves from what had gone before. So so trackers were part of the regular police force and, and these were the good guys and they would help find lost people and help solve crime. The troopers were the ones who had been part of the native mounted police force and they were quite a different thing and, and people didn't really want to admit to, to what those men had been required to do as part of their job. How violent was uh, the frontier here in Queensland? Yeah, look, there's some... That there's some really big questions um, in there. We, Linda Ryan's team, um, have been doing a fantastic job of of mapping the big massacres that have happened across Australia, and they've done that in Queensland. They've documented, I think, in excess of sixty big massacres, which they defined as where more than six people were killed. In our research, we've also been mapping the events where smaller numbers of people were killed and we've also mapped the events where nobody actually died but where there was a a violent interaction of some sort and somebody might have been speared but they did not die from that or someone was shot and wounded but did not die and we've also been mapping the attacks on property and on stock so the property might be an aboriginal camp or it might be a a pastoralist homestead whether whether the um, hut was ransacked and the rations taken, or it might have been where cattle were speared. And when you broaden out the, the nature of frontier wars and frontier conflicts from just focused on the big massacres, you see that there was violence all across the entire state for that very long period of time. So during our research, we've documented more than 2,100 events of frontier conflict which, as I said, fits into all of those different categories. And the fact that the Native Mounted Police were in, you know, they were a force that operated for more than five decades suggests that Aboriginal people did not give up their land easily or willingly. So the violence was incredibly widespread, lasted for a very long period. In some areas, Aboriginal resistance was relatively short-lived and there are certain reasons why that might have been. Um, If we look out in Western Queensland, for example, you have a lot of flat plain areas. There's not a lot of rugged ranges. And of course, if you've got a native mounted police force, so the fact of this force is that they're on horseback. They're on horseback and they've got very efficient weapons. And probably the Aboriginal population out there was relatively low compared to what it would have been like on the coastal areas where resources were more readily available. So if you've got small numbers of Aboriginal people to start with, very few areas of refuges where they could get away from those men with guns on horses, it was quite easy for those Aboriginal people out in Western Queensland to be tracked down by the Native Mounted Police and brought to heal, as they would have would have phrased it. In other areas like Cape York Peninsula, where around the Palmer River, there was an enormous influx of miners, thousands and thousands of Europeans and Chinese miners searching for gold. Incredibly rugged country. And of course, if you're trying to get around on a horse up there, it's actually really difficult. So Aboriginal people up there had a real great geographic advantage because it was easy for them to launch attacks against these invaders who had come into their territory. Um, And so we see the time period where there is this very violent interaction depends on which part of Queensland you're talking about. Um, So, And on the Palmer River, it went for at least 20 years, the wars up there. 
uh, whereas in Western Queensland, over a period of, of five to seven years, a lot of Aboriginal people were easily hunted down by the Native Mounted Police and and quickly realised that if they didn't capitulate or didn't come to some terms of agreement, um, that, that they would very quickly be all shot. So I think, so, you know, I, that's one answer to one of your questions in there. Mm. The other, one of the other questions you were asking in which we talked about off air was, you know, why did Aboriginal men join this force? And that's a question that we've spent some time thinking about. We've talked with some of the descendants of men who were in the Native Mounted Police Force. And for Aboriginal people in particular, this is not, the same for the white officers in the force, but for the Aboriginal members of the force, there are probably a lot of complicated reasons behind why they chose to do this. But that word that I just used, chose, is I think a word that we need to unpack about, unpack a little and, and talk about some more, because I'm not sure that Aboriginal people freely and willingly always joined this force. I suspect there was probably a lot of coercion that went on. I think or we know that Aboriginal men were promised you know, wages, a uniform, horses, access to guns and access to Aboriginal women who were often stolen after massacres or during raids. And so those things might have sounded attractive and they were probably not really told what they were going to be required to do in return for their labour. Mm. And we know that a lot of the Aboriginal men of the force actually deserted, which suggests that they were not happy with what it was they were doing. And some of them deserted on multiple occasions and they were then hunted down and brought back. Um, and I should actually jump in as well and just say, um, you're absolutely right about what the Native Mounted Police Force's primary role was. Their primary role was to subjugate any Aboriginal resistance um, and to protect pastoralists and miners and the Europeans and their livelihoods. But on occasions, the force actually did do some other tasks which were more along the lines of normal, what we would consider normal policing duties. So when people were lost in the bush, the tracking skills of those Aboriginal troopers were recognised and often the Native Mounted Police were sent out to search for lost swagmen or lost children. Um, they were also often used for the gold escort duty, so to protect the gold when it was being transferred from a mine or from the, from the gold field into the bank in town, which might have been hundreds of kilometres away. So, of course, you know, there were, there were bush rangers out there who were quite willing to jump one of those gold escorts if it meant they could, you know, carry off a chest of gold. And so the native police would sometimes accompany those gold escorts to protect the gold while it was on its way to the bank. So they did do some other, other general tasks that we would consider normal policing tasks, but mostly they were there to hunt down and to stop Aboriginal people from spearing cattle and horses or raiding huts and taking rations or killing um, Europeans. And sort of around this time as well, you know, like around, you know, the 18, we'll say 1850s uh, to, you know, to the early 1900s, um, the policies to remove Aboriginal children at this time were sort of in full effect as well. Aboriginal people who served in... Um, in the in the native mounted police, were they always <clears throat> sent to other areas, or were they usually used in their own area? No, you you hit the nail on the head there. Aboriginal people were always recruited from areas further away from where they actually had to patrol, and that was a very deliberate decision on the part of the Queensland authorities. It was quickly realised that Aboriginal people were more likely to engage in their job effectively if they did not have any family or relational ties, kinship ties with the Aboriginal people who they had to police. And therefore, people were recruited from areas that were hundreds of kilometres away from where they would then be required to work so that 
in effect, they were policing, although they were Indigenous people they were policing, they were not people who the Aboriginal troopers had any knowledge of or any relationship or any responsibilities towards in a, a cultural, traditional sense. Um, and that was, must have been very, very isolating for, for those men. I, you know, I, I often think, what was it like? You were recruited, made all these promises, and often you were then stuck on a boat, which was very likely the very first, first time they'd ever been on a European vessel, sailed up the coast to somewhere like you know, Rockhampton or Townsville, Port Denison, taken off the vessel and then sent off hundreds of kilometres inland to this new area where they were going to work. And it would have been a country that was completely foreign to them. So, you know, the plants and animals would often have been similar, but they would not have known where the water sources were. They wouldn't have known where the ceremonial places were, but I'm pretty sure they would have recognised some of them um, from from things like stone arrangements that would have been at some of those ceremonial places, but they wouldn't have known all the dreaming stories and the creation stories for that country. So it would have been very, I imagine, bewildering for them in some ways, um, trying to understand where it is they'd ended up. And, and they would have been looked upon in a very hostile fashion, I imagine, by the local Aboriginal people, which... When an Aboriginal trooper deserted, they, that was, must have been a massive decision for them because not only would they be then on the run from the police force and the police officers and troopers they had left behind who were always directed to go after them, they also then had to pass through the territory of the Aboriginal people they had been trying to kill for perhaps months or even years. And so they would have had enemies on all sides. So that just makes me think that the troopers who decided to desert, they never took that decision lightly. And things must have been pretty bad um, in that force for them to take on all that risk of deserting. Was there sort of still an, uh, an inequality within the Native Manor Police as well? well you know, or were they res- respected for the work that they did um, and they were, so, were they seen as equal? That's a fascinating question. We could probably talk for two or three hours about that one. Certainly the force was actually set up as a very hierarchical force. The white officers were always considered to be superior to the Indigenous troopers, even though the force couldn't have operated without those troopers. So without the troopers, everyone recognised, the entire community realised that without those Aboriginal troopers, a white, nat- a white mounted police force would have been useless out in the bush. So although there was a recognition that their skills and expertise were necessary, there was still a denial that those skills had any value. And so Aboriginal troopers were paid a pittance in comparison to the white officers. When we've gone out and looked at Native Mounted Police camps on the ground, so as archaeologists, we're interested in not just in the historical sources, the written documents, the newspaper accounts of the times, but we're actually interested in the physical evidence as well. And so working with a lot of local pastoralists and local Aboriginal corporations, we've managed to locate about 48 of these Native Mounted Police camps on the ground, and we've excavated about eight of them. And what we find when we look at these Native Mounted Police camps is that was, there was a very clear distinction in the areas where the white officers lived in those camps and where the Aboriginal troopers lived in those camps with their families. So you can still actually, from what you find in the ground hundreds of years later, you can actually still tell that where sort of the white officers stayed and also where the Aboriginal officers stayed as well? That's absolutely right. So one particularly good example of this is a police camp called Borelga, which is up in Cape York Peninsula in Rinuru National Park. And Borelga is quite unique because it's a, it's a Native Manor police camp which we actually have some photographs of. We don't know who took those photographs, whether it was one of the officers who had a camera and an interest in photography or whether it was a visitor to the camp, but a handful of photographs survive and they show us the what was a relatively large house of the white sub-inspector with his wife 
and their child um, with a picket, not well, not a picket fence, a post and rail fence around it. You know, it was really only a, a large one-roomed cottage, but relatively speaking, it was palatial compared to the huts which the troopers were photographed in front of, which were tiny little sort of two-metre by two-metre bark constructions. And we were able to relocate using geophysical techniques some of the rubbish dumps associated with those different areas. So we found the rubbish dump where the officer's house was and we found the rubbish dump where the troopers' huts were. And just by looking at the rubbish and the things that they had thrown away, we could see there were two very different lifestyles going on in that, that, that camp in particular. So in the officer's rubbish dump, we had lots of, lots of bottles of alcohol, lots of complete bottles, um, lots of china, often not matched china, not the really expensive china, but lots of big platters. We had lots of um, bones of domesticated animals, so pig, horse, cattle, and we had quite a lot of metal in that rubbish dump. When we go over to the native troopers' rubbish dump, we find almost no ceramic at all. So the troopers weren't given plates to eat off, or if they were, they were given enamel plates or a quart pot. But we also found a lot less evidence of domesticated animals. So there's not much indication that the troopers were being given the same foodstuff as the officers were. And what we found instead was that the Aboriginal troopers were supplementing their diets with all the native foods that were around them in the landscape. We also found almost no complete bottles. But what we did find in the troopers' area were lots of flaked glass artefacts. So the troopers were taking the bottles from the officer's rubbish dump, knocking off most of the bottles so they had the thick glass base, and then they'd sit around in their own area napping it just like they would have napped stone in the past to make little glass flakes with which they could shave or they could do leather working with or they could skin animals with they could do woodworking with so in a lot of ways aboriginal men were still living in some ways traditionally you know living off the land where they had to um, and they had their their wives and their children who were obviously also doing that because the the wives and children were only giving very meager rations they're only given half the rations that the troopers were given and that just wasn't enough to live on. And so, you know, Aboriginal people would go to the local lagoon and and scoop up mussels and catch fish and eat all those um, and not just live on the tea and sugar and white flour and, and, uh, you know, uh, salted beef that the officers were being given. One of the interesting things we did find in the troopers area, which we hadn't expected to find at all though, was some writing slates. So we know that some of the troopers were able to sign their name. So there was some, we think there was some um, some teaching um, going on in these camps, even though there was this massive divide between the status of a white officer and the status of an Aboriginal trooper. And I think, you know, when you think about where these camps were, they're out in the middle of nowhere. There may have been two white men in the camp, usually a, a sub-inspector and a constable who was a camp keeper, and then there were the troopers. And I have to imagine that even though colonial society at that time really looked down on Aboriginal people and were incredibly racist, especially after 1869 and Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species and that idea of evolution and, and the, the latter of evolution with Aboriginal people at the bottom and British people right at the top. In the late 1800s, that idea really permeated, but it was still those ideas of of cultural superiority were there right from the outset. But even despite that, you have to imagine if you're in the bush and you're lonely, you're going to talk to the people who are around you. And I'm sure that when the white, white officers had their wife and their children there, those children were not going to stay away from playing with the other kids who happened to live on the other side of the camp. The kids kids don't see race in that same way and they're completely oblivious to cultural norms and you know the status um, that somebody might have in society. So the kids would have all played. And I have to imagine for in the, the latter years when the white officers had their wives in the camps with them, 
those women, if they did not interact with the Aboriginal troopers' wives, they would have been completely isolated, especially when the, the detachment went out on patrol for weeks on end sometimes. So I think in the camps, we see evidence of those distinctions and that Aboriginal people were treated differently to the white um, members of the force. But I have to think that on a personal day-to-day -day level, there was quite a lot of interaction probably going on just because there were so few people out there who anyone could talk to. And loneliness, you know, it's a part of the human condition. And I'm sure that people would have reached out um, and, and had there would have been friendships. And we know that in some instances, some of the Aboriginal troopers um, were considered to be sort of more reliable men or spoke better English or had had some education and um, were sometimes serving as orderlies for the white officers. And although that was still a very subservient role, it may have meant that they didn't necessarily need to go out on patrol all the time. And certainly one of the white officers, Ole Morissette, when he transferred to Rockhampton from Port Denison or Port Douglas up north, he actually made a special request to bring um, one of the Aboriginal men south with him because they'd worked together for so long. And certainly a lot of the men, the original Aboriginal men in the force who were serving under Frederick Walker, they seem to have actually had genuine friendships. And a lot of them were very unhappy when Frederick Walker um, left the force and a lot of them chose to leave as well. And some of those men ended up working with Frederick Walker afterwards when he went on, on exploring mm. expeditions, which suggests there were, there were some genuine friendships that were made in that force. But of course, wider society really didn't want to know about these men. They, they wanted to be protected. The settlers, the pastoralists wanted protection. They wanted someone to do their dirty work, but they wanted it done out of sight. And they didn't really want to acknowledge what was going on. And I remember reading one particular newspaper account, and I don't know whether it was a, in a letter to the newspaper or it was actually an editorial, but the writer was complaining about the Native Mounted Police who'd come into town with their blood-stained clothes. And that, you know, this was just disgusting. They shouldn't be allowed to come in wearing bloody clothes. So it was like there was an acknowledgement that what they were doing was happening, but we didn't want to see the evidence of it. They had to be dressed in their uniforms and their uniforms had to be clean because we didn't want to see the dirty work, mm. which I thought was a really interesting little um, fray, you know, section of the newspaper that really stuck with me about, society's attitudes to these men and this force and the, the action, the actions that they were involved in. Well, I guess this sort of leads into my next question. Um, how well, well established are they throughout Queensland? How many camps and how close to sort of town areas are they where they're getting these complaints from? Yeah. So we think that there were at least 146, 148 different Native Mounted Police camps through their history. It's a bit hard to know because sometimes a camp was only established for a few months on a particular station and then it was sort of shut down and moved on. And then there were other camps which served as sort of a headquarters and those ones which served as headquarters might have lasted for 20, 25 years. So there's a couple of different... or you know, various different types of camps that we're talking about. In general, the Native Mounted Police camps are set up right on the very edges of the frontier, the, the ever-moving European pastoral expansion. There's no point putting them in the main town when it's the main town because resistance has already been broken in those areas. So they tend to be right on the outskirts and... Sometimes the native founded police camps end up being closer to town because the town grows up in these areas around them. Because when you're out in the middle of these very remote parts of Queensland, and if, if you're a traveller or a pastoralist heading along, you might call in at one of these native mounted police camps because there's a fire, 
there's some company there. It's a good place to camp overnight before you have to head on to the next place that you're going. When they tend to be close to settlements, there was often an issue with alcohol. And so for that reason, they were quite often set up away from homesteads or away from small fledgling towns, usually a distance of about 10 to 15 k. So a distance that was too far for the men to, to walk or ride into to town and get some alcohol. And, and this, you know, alcoholism was a big factor in the force. Um, on both for both Aboriginal troopers and for white officers. We've got a lot of accounts of white officers being disciplined because they were drunk on duty. Um, but generally these camps were quite a long way away from the towns unless they were sort of the headquarter camp. So Rockhampton, originally when the police were sent up there, it was sort of pastoral country, but then it, it grew into a town and the police, Native Mountain Police kept the headquarters in Rockhampton, um, not right in the town, but moved just sort of outside of town to try and keep some discipline within the ranks. In Cape York, some of those Native Mountain Police camps are as close as seven kilometres from each other. And that's an indication of just how rugged that country was and how hard it was to get around on horseback. Um, whereas when you move out into Western Queensland, the camps might have been 200 or 300 kilometres apart. So, again, it's one of these things that depends on which part of Queensland you're talking about um, and at what time period as to where those camps were located because not all 140-odd were occupied at the same time. So at any one time, probably at the, the peak of the Native Mounted Police Force, there might have been 25 or 30 camps operating at once, um, but generally it was lower numbers than, than that. At any one time, maybe a dozen camps were operational. And, of course, they started off on what were then the outskirts of you know European settlement in these pastoral um, areas. But as the pastoralists would push further and further out, eventually... Aboriginal people's resistance was broken down in an area and people may have been what they called let into the station, so allowed to, to set up camps nearby the homesteads or the outstations and the main waterholes and they provided a labour force then to the pastoralists. And when that happened, the Native Mounted Police would break down their camps. Um, if they had ironed roofs on them, they would stack up the iron on the dray cart and then they would head off to, the, to a new location to set up the camp again and start all over. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's how this force operated. Lots and lots of camps, but not all at the same time. And we've been able to work out that as well as this sort of 140-odd camps in total, that there were more than 440 white officers across the life of the force and more than 880 Aboriginal troopers. Um, there were almost certainly a lot, lot more troopers who served than we've been able to identify because obviously we can identify these men in the written sources and often they're not mentioned um, in the sources or they're only mentioned by a first name. So, that, you know, there might be 10 men called Jackie and it's very hard for us to work out, well, is this the same Jackie who was in the Blackhall camp as who was then in the Roma camp? Um, we just have no way of knowing. So we've got some minimum numbers, but we don't know maximum numbers of people who served across the entire life. Like I just Googled how many Aboriginal people died in the Queensland frontier. It said, it says, um, you know, uh, yeah, the number says 60,000. Um, that, that's a lot of people. Um, what do you sort of, you know, when you think of the numbers, do you, do you sort of think or perceive him to be this this high or, you know, have you sort of come to a conclusion of, of, of sort of putting a number out there as well? And and if so, you know, how would sort of these numbers, you know, uh, uh, come about as well? Yeah, look, we... There have been... This question of how many people were killed is, is, a, is a really difficult one to estimate and there have been attempts by the historians in the past to do this. Now, we 
in our research, when we were able to go through and figure out how many police camps there were, and we figured out when those camps first started being used and when they were finished being used, we find out when we look at the numbers that those camps were occupied for an average of eight and a half years for each camp. And some of the the previous historians have suggested that so Ray Evans and um, Robert Orsted Jensen suggested these these death rates, um, and they had based that on a certain number of camps, and those camps only operating for seven years. And we've actually been able to expand those numbers quite considerably. So when we've recalculated um, the numbers of Aboriginal people who would have potentially died at the hands of the Native Mounted Police in particular, um, we raised the number from about 41,000 people to more than 100,000 people. That's what, this, that's what this article, I guess, eventually gets to as well when I'm just sort of flicking through it. Um, you know, and... You know, it pretty much says, we'll never know for certain uh, the documentation is needed to determine an exact figure. Uh, to be 100 to 60 or 20,000 as well. Um, it's, yeah, yeah, you know, that, that, that's that's even a lot more, you know, um, than what we think. Um, and that's just sort of, and, and that's just sort of counting, I guess, you know, counting coming up with sort of a a figure of just sort of the conflict that's happening in Queensland is that or or is that is, is that just Queensland numbers our figures are just Queensland numbers that's, so and of yeah. course yeah it, it's staggering it, and it's, it's it, really it is yeah. it is staggering like you know even if you say 60 or 40 or even 20 is mm. staggering you know and yeah. then you and then like the figures that, that that you have just sort of thrown out um is you know, like, um, and, and then, and then, like, you know, we hear these stories of sort of, you know, um, you, you know, so like Queensland, you know, I guess um, there's sort of maybe the stigma of, of how brutal the history here in Queensland is. Um, you, you know, like we sort of hear these stories of how sort of racist and you know how wild, wild west sort of Queensland and Western Australia are, um, and then we sort of hear you know, of stories of like New South Wales, Victoria, or even, you know, Tasmania of how brutal um, they were, or even, you know, um, how, you know, in some cases they've, you know, um, it's recorded where the population of Aboriginal people are in the hundreds, you know, um, which which is scary within itself. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm just sort of, you know, like, um, yeah, I'm just... Um, a bit sort of taken away from those numbers and I guess trying to yeah. find some words to add. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're massive numbers, you know. When you throw yeah. those numbers out, what do you get in, you know, how are those numbers received, you know, when, you, when you're talking to people, you know, whether Aboriginal people, you know, yeah. non-Aboriginal people, conservative or non-conservative, you know, what's the response? I guess there's, there's a range of responses. So... Every, you know, we're archaeologists and, and we've got a, several members of our team and we've worked with Aboriginal communities in different parts of Queensland and Australia for, for many decades in most instances. And every Aboriginal community we've ever worked with, particularly in Queensland, will have a series of massacre narratives about their past and their history and how they are still here. Um, that they will share with us in order to sort of contextualise who they are and and where their country is and and what they've been through. And that is regardless of what sort of a project we'll be doing with them. These stories always come out. So it doesn't surprise me um, that the numbers are so high and and certainly Aboriginal people say, well, yeah, duh, we've been telling you that for, for decades and decades, that this was a very brutal, bloody conflict that went on for decades. I know... Sorry, I just want to sort of jump in. I know um, from speaking to other, to many historians on the podcast um, and just sort of chatting to them, at different points, you know, in the 90s and the 80s, you know, they were a part of this thing called the History Wars where there was a big denial mm. of sort of massacres, resistance, and even in some cases stealing children, you know, like there's a, there's a whole denial of, 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 of everything that actually went 
on and happened um, in that sort of frontier period, you know, when you throw figures out like this here, like 40,000 or 60,000 is very, you know, I guess could be very alarming to a conservative, you know, mm. um, but, you know, throwing out numbers like 100,000, how was that received? You know, like, I mean, well, I, I just... Yeah, for, well, from from the other side. So, so the one 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 extreme is Aboriginal people who say, "Yep, we knew that already. Um, we've mm. you know we've now oral histories." I guess the other extreme, uh, the right wing conservatives, I guess, who were the people who who fought on the other side of the history wars, and who want to deny that that settlement of Australia was so brutal. And to those people, you know, when someone is ideologically driven, who have a set, have a mindset that's not open to looking at the evidence, it's very hard to change their minds and they will continue to deny. I I was up in a pub in Darwin a couple of years ago and some bloke overheard me talking with my colleague and he, he came up to me at the bar and he said, what you're talking about is rubbish. You don't know what you're talking about. And I sort of said, well, actually I do. I've been researching this for years. Yeah. said, well, I'm, I work for the government and I work on numbers and I'm an accountant and I've been doing this. So I Googled some stuff and I did some work. I spent a whole day on it. And there's just no way those numbers make sense. And I just, in the end, I, I had to walk away from this man because I thought, yes, your one day of Googling trumps my four years of dedicated research into this data and all the research of the historians who have gone before us. But one of the things we've done with our project is to try and counter that. We've made all of the evidence that we have looked at available on our website and through our database. And I challenge anybody who wants to deny those numbers to read through the 15,000 documents that we have read through and transcribed and put onto the website and to look at the more than 1,200 incidents of frontier interactions that we've mapped on our database and when they have looked at all of the evidence I challenge them to come back to us and deny that that frontier war happened just as Aboriginal people have been saying it happened and just as historians and archaeologists have been saying it happened Mm. it, it is it is staggering it's upsetting when people don't want to look at the evidence that is in front in front of them, but we've made that evidence available. And the, the other thing I'd say to that is that it's very hard to reconstruct these numbers. Now, when a single white person was killed on that frontier, it almost always made it into the newspapers. There was absolute outrage that Aboriginal people had dared to hit back. And so we have a really good idea and understanding of how many white people were killed on the frontier because there are usually records written how about How many have you come across? Oh, I, I haven't got those numbers, those figures to hand. But it's in the thousands, but it's not tens of thousands. It's, it's relatively... Like one big, to ten. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a tiny fraction. Now, in contrast, the numbers of Aboriginal people died who died were much greater and there's a whole range of reasons for that. Partly it's because Aboriginal people were fighting spears and nullanellas and boomerangs and tomahawks, while Europeans had guns, had weapons that were almost always deadly. If you you know, if you were hit with a lead bullet from a Snyder, um, it was very hard to survive that, whereas you could be speared, and a lot of people survived being speared. The other thing was, you know, if we go back to the Mile Creek Massacre of 1838, there were 11 white, I think it was 11 white people, and, and Linda will be able to speak to this much more authoritatively than I can, mm-hmm. but 11 white stockmen were hanged for their role in massacring Aboriginal people at Mile Creek. After that, white people learned that lesson very clearly, that if you were going to kill Aboriginal people, you did it clandestinely and you didn't talk about it. You didn't brag about it. You didn't write about it. You just went out and did it. And then you tried to hide the evidence so that you couldn't be hanged for having done that. So we have a much better idea of how many Europeans were killed 
but we know that there was an order of magnitude of Aboriginal people who were killed um, at the same time. So, and often, as Lindell's work has shown, is that when Aboriginal people were killed, sometimes large numbers of people were killed. It wasn't just one isolated swagman or six miners over here. Sometimes there is evidence that 20 or 30 people, Aboriginal people, were killed in one frontier conflict event. Some of them may look like isolated ones, but they're sort of, you know, pockets of sort of the same people you know, carrying out these massacres over a period of time. I know speaking uh, with Lyndall um, and sort of, you know, because, um, you know, I'm a, like my family are descendant from Mile Creek, Wardlow Creek um, and, mm. you know, and Slaughterhouse Creek, um, you know, and, you know, these massacres were over, you know, a period of like five to six months, I believe, you know. Uh, Mile Creek happened, um, well, I'm trying to find this date now, it happened uh, June of 1838 uh waterloo creek happened uh january december december 1837 to january 1838 and you know chatting with you know historians you know they spoke about how um the 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 waterloo creek massacre was um and you know in order to sort of uh, hit if you want to call it a massacre you know where where, where military came up with uh, you know settlers pastoralists whatever you want to call them you know training them giving them ammunition you know they're out here for weeks finding the supposed uh, resistance fighters who they're looking for you know whether they get I think they kill them but then also they kill you know over 300 people in Waterloo Creek and then over the next few months the 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 police or the military head back to, you know, wherever they are and then it's these individuals that are sort of, you know, uh, carrying out these massacres and sort of tracking other Aboriginal people. Um, you know, and, and I'm sure through your work as well, you could see how, you know, um, these same individuals sort of, you know, you know carried out these uh, massacres or, you know, these... Um, yeah, these massacres in these different areas over yeah. a certain period of time as well. I'm, I'm sure you you, yeah. you would find that as well, yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely the case. And that was one of the reasons why we wanted to map all the events of the frontier interaction that we could so that you could see those patterns. So, you know, pastoralists don't push into an area and all of a sudden just immediately go and, and kill 15 Aboriginal people. There's a cycle that usually builds up to that particular big, bad massacre that Lindell's mapped on on her amazing mapping project. And usually these things start off as much more minor interactions where cattle are feared, a horse is feared, a hut might be ransacked for the rations. And on the other side, usually white pastoralists and their stockmen are raping Aboriginal women. They're stealing Aboriginal women or taking them or trading with their Aboriginal partners. So, you know, here's some tobacco and sugar and tea. I'll get access to your wife or your partner for, you know, several weeks. And then those relationships sour because the Europeans don't hold up to their end of the bargain. And so these these things usually escalate and the massacres are, are usually in response to a whole series of smaller events that have happened beforehand. And as you say, rightly... What then happens is a series of reprisal events. It's not just it's not just one offender who is then killed in retaliation. It's anyone and everyone who is of the wrong coloured skin. And one good example we have of this is up in around a, a little place called the Woolgar River in northwestern Queensland. And on the Woolgar River in 1881, a white sub-inspector of the Native Manor Police, Henry Kay, was speared to death. Um, so he and um, another police officer, um, William Nichols, had rounded up some Aboriginal people and were walking behind them on horses, horseback, and, and supposedly taking them into camp somewhere. And one of the Aboriginal men turns around and spears Henry Kay through the heart and he dies instantly. So one Aboriginal man killed Henry Kay. In retaliation, William Nichols goes and gets all of his troopers and he writes in a letter and says, 
for the next three days, I hunted down every Aboriginal person I could and killed them. Dispersed them was his term. I dispersed them. And they ran, the ones who I didn't get ran into the township and hid. Um, so one person had speared Henry Kay, yet ab- every Aboriginal person that William Nichols could find was punished mm. for that death. Mm. Which I think gives you, an, you know, it, it really brings home that point that, you know, it wasn't just an eye for an eye. It was, we are going to make you learn this lesson and how dare you defy us. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this was the message that was going out. So, yeah, so some of those reprisals, and they, they did, they went on for months. So that instance was three days that William Nichols admitted to. But there were other events after the killing of, there were four white stockmen who were killed on a waterhole called Wanamo out in Western Queensland. And those four white stockmen were supposedly killed because they had witnessed a ceremony that they should not have witnessed and they were told to leave and to go away and to not be there. And they didn't listen to what they were told. And so they were killed for having transgressed that cultural norm. In retaliation, the Native Mounted Police under Ernest Eglinton, who was then at the Burke River Native Mounted Police camp, um, and pastoralists who were largely led by Alexander Kennedy, um, went on a killing rampage for months and months and months in that region um, in retaliation for the killing of four white men. Um, so that's why we know that if, if you can calculate that X number of white men were killed, there must have been, you know, perhaps 10 times more Aboriginal people killed in retaliation because it wasn't a one-for-one retaliation. Oh, it was definitely, definitely. Um, and I know we're sort of, I, I didn't want to, I was conscious of time and, you know, mm. <clears throat> you know there's, there's amazing information that, uh, uh, that you, you know, that we're talking about and continuing to talk about as well. I just want to sort of go back to Mile Creek. So um, <clears throat> it's documented that there's 28 uh, Aboriginal people, I believe, uh, that that, uh, that were massacred. Um, I believe there was, I, I believe there was more. Um, mm-hmm. There was 12 uh, white followers um, uh, caught, um, and. There was the outcome of seven perpetrators convicted of murder and hung and uh, four perpetrators was acquitted uh, in that instance as well. No, no, that's all good. I like like, a few of the stuff you were saying, I was just Googling as well, just sort of um, add that as well. Um, It's, this is, you know, I do appreciate you making some time coming on here as well. I want to get you back on uh, further down the track as well to sort of continue on because I'm sure, you know, we've only just sort of touched the surface of some of the mm-hmm. conversations uh, that we're having as well. But, you know, for all those naysayers out there who want to argue about your your work or the word of Aboriginal people, you know, where can they go to, to sort of, to not just Google for one whole day, but, you know, like you mentioned, you know, look at the 12,000 documents that you have. Uh, where, can, where can we all go to find, you know, uh, the work that you're uh, uh, working on and creating? Yep. Um, well, we have, if you, we've got a website called frontierconflict.org and if people visit that website, they will then be able to log into our database. They can also log into the database directly by going to database.frontierconflict.org. Um, all they have, it takes them about 15 seconds to sign up. They get a login um, as a user. It's completely free. And once they've, once they've logged in, all of the links on the frontierconflict.org website will then work for them. So they can look up all of the officers, all of the troopers, all of the camps, all of the documents that we've recovered from the archives and from newspapers and things and look at that evidence for themselves. Awesome. I've been using uh, 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 Frontier Conflicts as well just to prepare for our interview. Um, I do got to create uh, a login, so I will do that Um uh, uh, sometime soon as well, so I can get back on uh, and uh, and just sort of check out some more of this information uh, that you're making as well. Um, and just for people listening as well, um, 
if you know if you're wondering who I have been speaking to, uh, Lindley Wallace, um, an archaeologist uh, and associate professor uh, from Griffith University, uh, please please head to Frontier Conflicts, create a login and just look at you know uh, some of this as well. Um, you know, and w- 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 the last twelve months have, have been a massive time uh, for for understanding the relationships that uh, Aboriginal people or people of colour have uh, with institutions like uh, the police service or the military, you know, uh, the reason why, you know, we have this long-standing um, uh, resentment towards this place as an institution is exactly because of um, the, 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 the traumatic events that were carried out in the establishment of you know the colonies and then also the countries that we live in uh, today as well. That's why there's this uh, continuing resentment because you know the killing of Aboriginal people or Black folks, Indigenous people around the world have never stopped. You know, and this is important work uh, to look at. You know, it's one thing to come out and support, you know, us on Invasion Day or, you know, at a Black Lives Matter rally. But, you know, let's start to unpack uh, the history of why Aboriginal people continue um, to rally and, and fight against, you know, the police force as an institution that carries out, that has, you know, that, you know this Queensland Mounted Police were created you know, for this exact reason to punish Aboriginal people for aggression and resistance against uh, property, the livelihoods of settlers. Um, I could continue to go on, but I'm going to stop now. Thank you, uh, Lindley, for coming on and having this chat um, on Frontier War Stories. Um, it's a privilege and an honour to have a chat and and have you uh, on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me, Go. I've, I've- Although the content is is really quite disturbing, it's been it's been a privilege to be able to work on this project and to share this information with you and all your listeners out there. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to, you can become a Patreon subscriber. You can donate money uh, to the podcast, and you do that by going to Podbean, Frontier War Stories and clicking uh, Become a Patron on the top right-hand corner of the page.